0: Revelation chapter 7 tonight, as we continue our chapter-by-chapter study of Revelation on Wednesday night. By the way, while you're finding Revelation chapter 7, I want to encourage you with this. Nicole is going to be introducing a new worship song for us on Sunday. So I want to encourage you to get here and get into the auditorium and help us lead in worship on Sunday, okay? Because you all can be leaders right where you are. On Sunday right here. And uh, we're looking forward to that uh, new song on Sunday. There's a couple different ways uh, to sort of organize, if you will, or outline this chapter. It is one of three intermissions, if you will, in the book of Revelation. It's almost like You ever watch those intense movies and then all of a sudden they have like a a scene where it's like things, you know, are sort of uh, settled down a little bit because you can't stay at that level of intensity all the time? Well, I, I think God understands that too because last week we were into that very intense chapter six and the wrath of the Lamb is being poured out and you end chapter six with who is able to stand against the wrath of the Lamb and obviously no one, no one can oppose the lord he is unstoppable okay but in chapter 7 now we have a pause it's almost like okay we get to catch our breath and now we're taken to a different scene okay in the tribulation period and i want to just share with you first of all a couple different ways you can sort of outline or or look at this chapter one way is to see again god which is the primary focus of this book. Let's remember, the first few words of this book are, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so many Christians even, when they come to the book of Revelation, they primarily study it because they want to know all the details of prophecy and they want to know all the characters involved with end-time prophecy and they want to know the days, the times, and the seasons and all these different things. And I'm not saying those things are not important because if they weren't important, God would not include them here, but they are never to be more important than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the primary figure in the book of Revelation. And any study of the book of Revelation where you and I do not come away from a study of Revelation more in love with Jesus, more in in admiration of Jesus, more appreciative of Jesus, uh, and all of that, then we've missed the main thing about Revelation. So I say all that to say, I want you to see, first of all, four things, and we'll come back to these, okay? Okay. Four things that I see God doing in this chapter. The first thing is God is sealing, okay? God is sealing. He says in verse 3 of chapter 7, Do not damage the earth or the tree or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And they were marked, verse 4, with this seal. In heaven, verse 10, they were shouting out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. God alone can save. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11, God says through the prophet Isaiah to his people, I, I am the Lord. There is no other deliverer or savior but me. God alone can save. So God is sealing here. We'll talk about what that means. God is saving here. Then if you go down to the end, and this is a great picture, and again, we'll talk more about it. John here is capturing at the end of chapter 7, this awesome throne room scene, so that all who come behind John, those who are reading it in John's day, and even those of us who are here today, can catch the wonder of what our future is going to be like with God. Because you and I are going to be in this chapter. And notice what it says about our future with God. First verse 15 at the end. And the one seated on the throne will shelter them. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So God seals, God saves, God shelters. And then finally, verse 17, because the lamb in the middle of the throne will shepherd them, God shepherds his people. So one way to approach this is God seals, God saves, God shelters, and God shepherds. Because again, you cannot or should not, get into the book of Revelation without seeing more about God and coming to understand Him more and appreciate Him more. Another way you could break this chapter out is in this way. In the first four verses, you're seeing the authentication of the servants of God because that's what the seal represents. It, It is a confirmation. It is an authentication. It is God saying, they're mine. They're mine. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. Then from verse 5 through verse 10, salvation. Authentication in the first four verses, salvation in verses 5 through 10. Then in verses uh, 11, or excuse me, I've I've messed that up. From verse 5, excuse me, got to make a correction here, through verse 8 is salvation. Then verse 9 through verse 12 is celebration. Celebration. And then verse 13 through 17 is expectation. And the reason I say expectation is because even you and I can begin to understand what we should be expecting when we get to heaven too. And it's going to give us a little bit of a hint there. So let's go back to the beginning here and see what's happening. Follow along with me. Verse 1 of Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth so no wind could blow on the earth, on the sea, or in any tree. Again, we are being reminded the Creator, our God, is the one who's in charge of creation. Creation is is at His disposal. He is sovereign over His creation and can use it any way He wants to. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east who had the seal of the living God. He shouted out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given permission to damage the earth and the sea. And again, who gave them permission to do it? God. All of it's coming from God. God is in control of what is going on on earth in the end times. Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the heads of the servants of our God. God's people, whether you're talking about in this passage or in any part of history, God's people is his treasured possession. We are his. And part of the idea of putting a seal upon his people is, again, a mark that we belong to him. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And so God seals us. He confirms us. He authenticates that we are His. And that's what He's even going to do in the tribulation period. He's going to put His seal on certain servants because they are going to serve him. And I believe part of their service during the tribulation period is they're going to be part of a mighty, witnessing, evangelistic army that is going to come to know the Lord soon after the tribulation begins and then to filter out into the earth, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are going to get saved during the tribulation period. Verse 4, now I heard the number of those who were marked with the seal 144,000 sealed from all the tribes of the people of Israel. God is sealing His people. Now, how do we apply this to our life? Keep your finger in Revelation chapter 7 and go back first with me to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Many of you probably know this verse by heart, or maybe you know where I'm going with this. Ephesians 1.13 tells us as believers today, and when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, guess what? You and I were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. You were marked. You also have been sealed And the evidence of that seal is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's why Paul even said to the Romans in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So let me ask all of you a question because I don't want to take it for granted. Obviously, between you and the Lord. Are you sealed? Do you know you have been marked? Do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Because that's very, very important. We know, even in the book of Revelation, what a contrast in destiny between those who have the mark of God on them and those who take the mark, the other mark in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast, which will be given to those after the rapture of the church who are in the tribulation, you see. Now, we're going to find out as we move through the book of Revelation that there are going to be many of God's people who refuse the mark of the beast, and they will be martyred. And we're going to talk more about that tonight. And then if you'll turn back a little bit further to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Oh, let me start in verse 21, get the flow. But it is God who establishes us together with you in Christ and who anointed us and who also sealed us, signifying that we belong to him, giving us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. So yes, God marks, if you will, and seals his servants throughout history in some way identifying that we are His. Today, in the church age, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's our mark. That's our seal, if you will. In this time, it's going to be something else. In fact, it says there in verse 3, it's going to be on their foreheads. Does that mean it's going to be visible? Very possible. Very possible. But the thing is, our God marks his own. Now, the seal of God does not mean that God is going to keep us or them from trial and tribulation. As we know, these servants are protected from God's wrath that's being poured out, but not from the wrath of the Antichrist or his followers during the time that they are on earth. That's why many of them are martyred. But what I want to encourage us with is this. Once God marks you and me and seals us with his Holy Spirit, our victory is secure. Because what is truly of greatest value and worth can never be taken away from us. They can kill our body, but they can never take away our personal relationship with God. In fact, if you go back to Revelation, I want to show you this, even from the book of Revelation, in a few chapters over. Go with me to chapter 13, verse 7, where we are informed that many of the servants of God during the tribulation period will be allowed by God to suffer martyrdom and at the hands of the Antichrist. Notice Revelation 13, 7. The beast was permitted to go to war against the saints. Wow, God's going to allow his people to, to, you know, Have to go to war against the beast? Absolutely. And notice what it says. God will permit the beast to conquer them. Now, again, not ultimately, only to take their earthly life from them. He was given ruling authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And who gave him the beast that authority? God. Okay? So again, God is in complete control. But now go back to chapter 12 and look at verse 11. The same people that are being permitted to suffer under the hand of the beast, notice what it says in chapter 12, verse 11 of Revelation, but they overcame him. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. We talked about that last week how it's a challenge to even us today in the church on this side of the tribulation period that that God does not want his church to handle opposition from the world by passive flight and running away and isolating ourselves, but by active, strong witness. Even if it means we go to jail, even if it means they do something to us, they take this away, they take that away, even if it means they take away our life, we've got to be strong enough to stand up and be a light for Christ no matter how difficult it gets on earth, knowing that, again, God is always in control. And once you are sealed, then the world, the flesh, the devil, they cannot take away from us anything that is of greater value. That's locked in and loaded for all of eternity. And once we've been sealed by God with the Holy Spirit, we, like them, have overcome all things by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Sealed. See, it's very important. Then if you go back to chapter 7, part of this witnessing army, if you will, this evangelistic army, are these 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each one of the tribes. And we're not going to take a lot of time to go through this, but, but here's what I want to say. In 70 AD, when Titus came through and destroyed Jerusalem, all records of what Jews belonged to what tribes and what families were belonging, that was all destroyed. Jews today, like if you went up to a Jew today and you asked them, are you from, are you from the tribe of Simeon or Levi? or They would have no idea. That's all been lost. And the reason I bring that up is for this reason God knows. God knows who belongs. It is a reminder to us again about the greatness of our God. God is in the details. God knows things about them that they don't even know about themselves. Same thing with us God knows things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. God is in the details. And you can trust him in the the greatest details of your life and the most minute details of your life because nothing escapes God. He's got it all figured out, and he's got it all within his purview. And there's nothing beyond him. There's nothing beyond his wisdom to be able to handle. There's nothing beyond his power to be able to deal with. Nothing at all. And so this is even a testimony again to just the greatness and to the wisdom and to the omniscience of God, how God is in the details of everything and knows things about every human being that they don't even know about themselves, which is why God says to all of us, trust me, I know you better than you do yourself, you see. A couple interesting things about this list. First of all, you'll notice in verse 5 that Judah is mentioned first. Though Reuben was Jacob's firstborn, Judah is listed first because the Messiah came from Judah. And they are also listed in a sense here, uh, out of whack a little bit, but they're they're listed here, and I want to show you how they're listed based upon their mother. So real quickly, the sons of Leah would be Judah, Reuben, Simeon, verse 7, and Levi, Issachar, and Zebulun, okay? They're all the sons of Leah. Then you have Gad and Asher, verse 5 and 6. They are the sons of Zilpah, okay, one of the servants who had these two with Jacob. Then you have the one son of Bilhah, the other handmaid or servant of Jacob, Naphtali, in verse 6. The reason the other son of Bilhah is not mentioned, Dan, and I'll get to that in a minute, is because Dan was the first tribe in Israel to embrace idolatry. And when Dan, as a tribe, embraced idolatry, God says, you forfeit your right. To this. This is a privilege, and you will not be part of this. Same thing with Ephraim, because you'll also notice then in verse six that Joseph's son, Manasseh, is listed here, okay? But his other son, Ephraim, is not mentioned here. Why is one of Joseph's sons, Manasseh, mentioned and Ephraim not? Because Dan was the first tribe to embrace idolatry in Israel. Ephraim was the first tribe to bring idolatry into the nation or land of Israel. And again, for that reason, God said you forfeit your responsibility and your privilege. And then finally, over in verse 8, are the sons of Rachel, which we're very familiar with, Joseph and Benjamin. Now again, I believe in the context that these 144,000 Jews come to know the Lord early on in the tribulation period, as God turns his attention back to Israel in that 70th week of Daniel that Daniel talks about. The church has already been raptured, and now God turns his attention back to Israel, How is he going to then get other Jews to come to know Jesus as their Messiah? By using Jews to do it as witness. But obviously, these Jews aren't just limited to talking to other Jews about the Lord Jesus. They can talk to Gentiles too. And the reason I also lean towards this being a witnessing evangelistic army is because of the context even of chapter 7. Then if you go past all of these tribes and you come to verse 9... It says, after these things, I looked, and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up of persons from every tribe, nation, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb dressed in, again, long white robes, symbolic of spiritual victory, and palm branches in their hands, a sign of joy on festive occasions. And they were shouting in a loud voice, salvation, belongs to our God and to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. But where did this multitude come from? Where did they come from? Look at verse 14. I answered, or I said to him, my Lord, because he asked the question, where did these people come from? And he said, these are the ones who have come out, don't miss this, out of the great tribulation. Please mark that. That's important, because what does that tell us? That tells us that God is saving tons of people in the darkest days of human history, when the church is gone, and the Antichrist is ruling, and it's unimaginably spiritually dark, and yet God always has his remnant, God always has his light, God always has his influence, and God always has a heart to save, even up to the very end of history as we know it on the earth. And the reason I want to point this out when you talk about not only God's sealing, but God's saving is again, going back to that phrase in verse 10, salvation belongs to God and God alone. He's the only one who can save, He's the only one who can deliver. He's the only one that can rescue, and let's not forget either, in the book of Revelation especially, this word for salvation means more than just deliverance, rescue, salvation, as in we know it, like I turn to Christ, I ask him to be my savior, he saved me, it also means victory. Victory. And so this celebration that's going on of all this huge crowd that's coming out of the tribulation is they're celebrating the victory of God that even though many of them died as martyrs, they consider themselves victorious because the Antichrist and the devil and all the, you know, legions of hell and the world and everything else could not take away from them what, is, what was most valuable, which was their eternal salvation. The best is yet to come. And as I, you, you know, hear me say many times, this is the only hell you and I as Christians will ever know. But for those that don't know the Lord, this is the only heaven they will ever know. Gives us some perspective. Now, the reason I want you to focus on that they came out of the Great Tribulation is if you're ever in life dealing with a situation that you think is insurmountable, it's just, it's so big, it's, it's overwhelming, it's just, you know, it, remember something. With God, all things are possible. With our God, there is nothing too hard, he says, for him. If our God can bring tons of people out of the great tribulation and save them at that time, it is a reminder to us that God never, our God, never needs perfect circumstances to work in. In fact, what it shows is our God is actually an expert at working in the worst of circumstances and still bringing great things out of it which is why Paul says to the Romans, not that we believe that everything is good, but that we believe with all of our hearts that our God can work everything out for some kind of good in Romans 8:28. That he can take something awful, and if you give him time and you put it in his hands, he can bring something good out of it. That's God. And that's what we see him doing here, even in the truth. God does not need optimum conditions to work in. In fact, most of the time, because he's dealing with us here on earth, he's always working with terrible conditions. And yet, look at what our God can do. So I want to encourage you with that. Yes, God seals, and yes, God saves. But here we're also being reminded that God is not saving in this, you know, garden, in this paradise, you know. No, he's saving people in the darkest days of human history. And if our God can do that and bring multitudes out of the great tribulation, don't give up, and don't give up hope on what your God can do in your life or in someone else's life because that's who our God is. And that's why this book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is primarily to exalt Him. And then you see the celebration continuing here in verse 11. All the angels stood there in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground before the throne and worshipped God. Here's that word that I talked about before we did our worship tonight literally means to kiss. It spoke about a kissing ground. Another way you could translate it is, is to adore on bended knee. There's, another, I mean, there's several places that this word is also used in the New Testament. You know, one place this is used? Back in the Gospels, when the wise men came to offer their gifts to the Christ child, same word, they worshiped him. When they put their gifts before the baby Jesus. They not only adored him on bended knee, they kissed him. You say, it's an awful strain. No, it's not. Again, God wants our heart, not just our head. And, and, And this concept is not just a New Testament concept. In Psalm 2, God commands the leaders of the world to kiss his son, God the Father, or else they will face his wrath. worship. In fact, it was even used in Bible times, this concept, this this phrase, this word, to describe a dog licking its master's hand. That's the picture. That's the concept, you see. They threw themselves down and worshiped God, saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So be it. A strong affirmation. Then I said, then we come to this great expectation part. Because again, John is is writing this to to remind us, this is what we can expect when we all get there with the Lord. So I want to jump down to verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. Let's stop there. Let's not go by that too quickly. What a privilege. Not only are they going to be able to stand before the throne of God, but do you realize because you and I are in Christ, by the way, that phrase, in Christ, 172 times used in the New Testament alone, because you and I are in Christ and Christ is our Savior, you and I have the privilege of one day standing before the throne of the God of the universe and to see Him face to face. That's what you and I get to look forward to. That's what we get to expect. That's what we get to live in anticipation of each and every day as Christians. One day we're going to stand before the Lord face to face and be there at his throne room in heaven. Second, another expectation, verse 15, and they serve him day and night in his temple. By the way, this is an interesting word that literally means we worship him through our service. It's not the normal word for service in the New Testament. It's another word that actually puts worship and service together. It was used of the priests who would do their priestly duties around the house of God. They were serving, but they were worshiping as they served, or they were serving as they were worshiping, however you want to look at it. And and people, you know, a lot of Christians, what are we going to do for all of eternity? Guess what? We're going to serve the Lord. God's going to give us purpose throughout eternity. We're not going to just be up there aimless, like just floating around, like, what do we got to do? No, God's going to give us responsibilities. God's going to give us roles to fill. God's going to allow us to rule and reign with Him in His earthly kingdom and in His everlasting kingdom. We're going to serve. We're going to have purpose forever and ever. There's never going to be a time throughout eternity, no matter how far out you want to go with your head, where it's like, we have nothing to do. First of all, we're going to spend the rest of eternity discovering our God who's infinite and never get to the end of him. So that's what we're going to do. But then I love this. Notice what, that's what we're going to get to do. Notice what God promises he's going to do for us. And the one seated on his throne, verse 15, will shelter them. It literally means God is going to cover his people with his glory, He's going to share his glory with us. He's going to, in a sense, place his glory over us like a tent or tabernacle, if you will, using the Old Testament. That's what God's going to do. No wonder Paul said to the Romans, for I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us one day. Romans 8, 18. God's going to share his glory. I mean... I don't know about you, but again, that should just cause us to pause like, wow. He wouldn't have to do that. That's not our glory. And yet we're going to get to share in it forever and ever because he's literally going to cover us with his glory. And then it says, they will never be hungry or be thirsty again. And the sun will not beat down on them nor any burning heat. In other words, God whatever privation, whatever was lacking here on earth, whatever affliction or harm we may have went through down here, that will all be taken away. Because the lamb, notice verse 17, is right smack dab in the middle of it all. See, God's not a God who wants to spend eternity with us, but says, "Uh, guys, I'm over here in my exclusive penthouse throne room. And, and you all, you're going to be in those slummy apartments way out there somewhere on the backside of heaven. Because I'm, you know, no. I mean, think about it. God said, no, I'm going to be smack dab right in the middle of all of you. Because I know it sounds crazy, but the joy of heaven for God is going to be us. <laughs> Not because he needs us. He's perfectly God and could have done without us forever, and that would have been fine for him. We need him. He doesn't need us. But God says, no, I want to spend eternity just right in the middle of all of you. Amazing. And shepherd you, our great shepherd. And he'll guide us because he's our shepherd. He will lead us to those springs of living water. And I, I only could help but think about that conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman when You know, he looked at her and said, uh, that water that you're, you know, getting from that well, you drink that, you're going to be thirsty again. But the water that I give you, you'll never be thirsty. It'll always fulfill and satisfy you at the deepest level, and that's what we get to do. All of our needs, even in eternity, are going to be met in Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. He's going to supply us with a full and rich eternal existence. Everything we're ever going to want or need, he's still our source. He's not only going to shelter us, he's going to shepherd us. And, oh, by the way, part of that shepherding is he is going to spend time with each of us, consoling us, comforting us, counseling us? Because notice what the chapter ends with. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. First of all, are there going to be tears in heaven? Absolutely, for a time. But notice something. God doesn't send some angel or some human being to wipe the tears from his people. God does it himself. God's going to sit down and you say, why will we be shedding tears? It could be for a multiplicity of reasons. And I'm not even going to get into all that. But I think that many, many Christians will be shedding tears when they get to heaven. And yet the promise of God is, I'm going to comfort you. And I'm going to be the one to sit down beside of you as your God and wipe those tears away and we're going to have some good talks, and we might even have some good cries, but I'm going to be right there with you. My goodness. A God that not only seals us, a God that not only saves, but a God who shelters us, a God who shepherds us, a God who cares so much about us that he shares his glory and will meet all of our need, not only in this life, but in the eternity to come, and even down to the point where he'll take the time himself, to console and comfort our broken hearts. What a God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for just the glimpses, Lord, that we get into you and the God that you are by studying your word. And Lord, even by spending our time in your presence as we worship you, God. And I pray tonight, Lord, that all of us would just walk away with maybe a renewed appreciation for our Savior and for the salvation that we have, for the fact that we've been sealed for all time with the Holy Spirit of God, that we will one day see you shelter us and literally cover us with your glory forever and ever we will be able to experience you shepherding us, guiding us, and leading us throughout eternity and taking the time to comfort us and console us, God. You're amazing. And it's all because you want to, not because you have to, not because we deserve it, not because we can earn it, but simply, Lord, because you have such a heart of love for your people, we are your treasured possession, God. Oh, that we could come to grips with that just a little bit more. And all oh, that we could turn the reality of being your treasured, treasured possession back on you and begin to love you and adore you with all of our hearts, God. To just have you shape within us a heart of worship, a heart of service, a heart of a life that's just willing to lay ourselves down completely for whatever you want, God, and to make ourselves available to you each and every day. God, I just pray that you would continue to do a work in your people here at the Oasis and those who are watching over live stream, God. And bring us back together on Sunday that we might have another opportunity if you don't come back for us, God, where we can come together again and just engage in your presence, God. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. God bless. We'll see you next week.